Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. It's the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast that focuses on watching soccer on TV, online and apps. Coming up on this week's show, we have an interview with John Nicholson about his explosive new book, BN Sports gets added to over-the-air channels, MLS reveals its TV schedule plans for 2020, VAR sucks the life out of the Premier League, plus we have letters for you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined today by my co-host Kartik Krishnayar and special guest John Nicholson, who will be joining us shortly. So Kartik, let's start off by asking, um, what's been your favourite things you've been watching from this past week of football over the uh, holiday break where you know, it's, it's I mean, practically Premier League... Uh, almost like a monopoly I mean there were some Scottish matches some championship matches but what have you been watching yeah so I've watched a couple of those championship matches I didn't have all the time off that other folks had or what that I'm traditionally used to having off so I I missed uh, all of Boxing Day Live but uh, the Liga Emeki's final was the best thing I watched this week both legs Uh, one leg was on FS1 and Fox Deportes this uh, other leg was on Univision and and, uh, Dudiene Funes More, and I know this is a sore subject for a lot of MLS fans because he came through FC Dallas' academy. He won the Sueño MLS um, contest, a reality show contest, and then was not offered a contract. That, things are different now in MLS. If a guy comes to an academy, uh, he would be offered a contract. But um, the uh, reality is Funes More has gone on to a great career in Argentina and Mexico, uh, scored an incredible bicycle kick at the end of league, uh, leg one, and then had another uh, uh, decisive goal in leg two that sent uh, the uh, the tie to penalties, which Monterey won his club, Monterey. So uh, I watched that. Uh, Soccer Box with Gary Neville. If you didn't watch those on Boxing Day, I DVR'd all three of them. There was one with Berbatov, one with uh, Wayne Rooney, and an incredible one with Steven Gerrard. I highly recommend you watch this show, which is a Sky show, which they uh, show on NBC, obviously. Uh, Gary Neville, and we've sung his praises before, Chris, but he has – an uncanny ability to intellectualize football uh, in terms of former players. There are not many that can do it the way he does. He talks about fitness issues, psychological issues, training issues, uh, general, just general football, higher level football discussions. And the one with Gerard was particularly good. That one was an hour long also. And they talked a lot about um, 
specific managers, Julie, uh, Benitez, uh, for, for Gerard, the, uh, uh, the drinking culture in English football, the, um, and Gary Neville very, very probably accurately said part of the reason Manchester United, we, there was so much talk of Fergie time historically, right, Chris? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, part of the reason Fergie time existed and part of the reason Manchester United were so good after minute 80 uh, particularly, he said in the '90s, uh, when Arsene Wenger came to Arsenal, he cut out the drinking culture and kind of changed the culture around English football. But prior to that, is uh, Gar- Gary Neville said we had cut that out before Liverpool had cut it out, and Arsenal had cut it out, and Leeds had cut it out, and, and, and the, the the clubs we were competing with. So uh, that's why we were so strong. I mean, we could feel it when we were playing other teams that they would drop off well, uh, in minute '80. Dumb, dumb question here, Kartik, but I mean, I, I know from this past weekend there was a ton of. Ex- Access or uh, shoulder content, so to speak. Yeah. Where, where where did you watch this, and where can listeners uh, well, find, I, find I, it? So I DVR'd everything um, because I was working. So actually, perhaps had I had the day off, like I typically have had Boxing Day, I would have just dropped off at the end of the final match. So what I did this year is I DVR'd everything uh, that NBC had. So they had uh, three episodes of the soccer box on boxing day night. The three I mentioned, they had the obviously men and blazers. They always have. And then they had several premier league downloads. The one with Frank Lampard and Gary Lineker was particularly good. Also yeah. with Gary Lineker interviewing Frank Lampard. Uh, they showed the noisy neighbors again. They showed the impossible dream again. So they did a fantastic job with shoulder programming this week. And, and have to say that also uh, goal zone, on Sunday was particularly good with, with the two Robbies and Rebecca Lowe after all the VAR controversies. Uh, so I watched that. I watched the Liga Emeki's final. Also have to mention, watched ESPN FC on Sunday night. And I, and I know there's been so, a lot of discussion on social media about Stuart Robson's rank, uh, rant about the Premier League being arrogant and thinking they're better than everyone. I thought it was uh, – I thought he was pretty accurate. Maybe it came across as being kind of bitter because he talked about the other leagues he uh, – um, he, he broadcasts Serie A, Bundesliga, MLS. Uh, those of you who don't know, I think we've talked about it on the show a lot. Robson is, is a commentator that does – he does an incredible potpourri of work uh, around football. Uh, but he, uh, he he took the opportunity in the discussions of uh, VAR to, to really slam the Premier League and also uh, said that he he's not convinced uh, on the on the Wolves goal that was disallowed. John, Johnny Otto was a you – know, foot not right. even foot, like yeah. an inch offside well, he said he's not even convinced looking at the replay that the line was drawn correctly he thinks <laughs> there's a strong case he yeah. was on yeah well so we'll get into that in a minute we're gonna have uh, john nicholson on the line in a second but uh yeah lots, lots of great things one more thing to add to that Kartik is just that uh for those uh listeners who want to watch some of that programming if you have fubo tv you can go back in time so you can go back i think a few days um and watch some of that programming it's just on the, the, the um, electronic program guide. So that's that's one helpful tip here. But, but let's add John on and let's discuss a little bit uh, of what uh, John's thoughts are on VAR, but also to get a, a glimpse of or an idea of what uh, was his favourite match or favourite uh, programming from this past week. Just a sec. Well, uh, much of my uh, sort of football, inverted commas, watching actually happens on the radio. I'm a huge fan of football on the radio, mm-hmm. so I tend to listen to most games on Five Live, on the BBC Five Live. And the one I particularly enjoyed was the um, Liverpool-Leicester game, um, simply because I think I just enjoy the way that Liverpool play so much. It's, I mean, regardless of the fact of the fact it's successful, I just love that kind of direct 
wide, fast counter-attacking style. For me, it's always been the most exciting sort of football, even going back to childhood. So it's kind of, uh, to me, it just has an eternal pleasure to it. And uh, just to hear them how, and then obviously I looked up, because you see all the highlights on the Twitter now anyway, and you just look up how all um, the wingers work for them. Those wingers, they have to be, or the full-backs rather, wing-backs, full-backs, whatever they are, I never know what to call anything anymore. But uh, they must be the best in Europe and best in the world. And they're just so thrilling. So that was why, that's why I really enjoyed I have to ask though, like, what is the VAR experience like on radio? I mean, so you're, not, you're obviously not seeing the lines and those types of things, but yeah. is, is it more enjoyable or, or is it just frustrating? No. What's it like? Well, I actually feel really sorry for all the commentators, and uh, because if they're in the studio having a discussion, then have to cut to a live game. Um, because the commentator at the live games obviously said, yeah, we've got a goal, so, or we'll go to the goal. Go, oh, we haven't got a goal. Sorry, it's been ruled out. <laughs> and it's so very. I feel really sorry for them because it breaks up all the flow of it. I wouldn't say it's exciting. I think it's um, it rather deadens the experience because every time a goal is declared, you think, well, is it really? Is it? I mean, even yesterday, there was the, the Wolves goal, or so-called goal, um, was declared to be definitely a goal, and Mark Lawrenson, who was doing the co-com, said, yeah, that's onside. And I said, oh, hang on, it's VR. Oh, no, it's not onside. It's offside. And so, you know, you kind of... It is very much coitus interruptus, I think, really. <laughs> We've almost gotten to the point where we should call a goal a semi-goal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just until we know whether it's a, a full-on goal yeah. or not. It is. It's kind of like, um, it's not the full-fat goal. It's the fat-free goal. <laughs> you want to get the full-fat goal after uh, after the VAR. <laughs> so so just, just to add to that, too, in terms of what I watched from this past week that was m- the most enjoyable for me, um, had to be the Man City-Wolves game. I mean, Wolves, to me is a club that I've always had a soft spot for, even from when I was a kid. I don't know if it was the, the kit or the name or the, the stadium, Molyneux, it sounds like so yeah. just, uh, I don't know, so, so amazing. But uh, yeah. but the way that uh, Nuno's got this team playing, um, I mean, both in this Man City match where, I mean, deserved um, p- performance there, but even, even in, in the other matches too, uh, all weekend long, Wolves, and actually Sheffield United too, have been just a joy to watch. Now, yeah. go, go ahead, Wolves, I was going to say, that Wolves side is really um, really interesting to watch because uh, Dharma Traore um, used to play for Middlesbrough. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, he, he wasn't that shape when he played for Middlesbrough. <laughs> and so I am crediting this enormous uh, muscular development that he's undergone. Um, it must have been the Teesside diet. So it's basically it's Parmos, <laughs> which, is chicken, which is essentially deep-fried chicken and cheese. That'll make anybody big. So, <laughs> so I'm taking I'm taking some Teesside credit for the performance of uh, Triori these days. He is so fast. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting. In Kartik, you probably remember this too, in terms of Triori when he was playing for Borough last season or the last couple of, couple of years. He was so fast, but he'd almost like run into a brick wall. He'd yeah. run into the last defender and stop and then get stuck. And his technique, and his technique uh, John, has gotten much better since he got to Wolves. That's another thing oh. I noticed. He just was pace, pacey at Borough. Now he's got... Uh, some trick moves, you know, he has some control of the ball. Uh, he's become a much better player. Yeah, he's learned that you actually have to look up while running with the ball to know what to do with it next, which he never used to do with the Borough. He'd just set off. Sometimes he'd set off and he didn't even have the ball. You know, it was ridiculous. So, um, yeah, he has. His game's come on a lot. I mean, obviously, um, the manager, Nuno, must have 
really taken into into hand, really. And you know, because he was such a lethal weapon in terms of speed, he just had nothing else. But of course, now he's had all this to his game, so you know, fantastic, really. So we have to talk about the one topic uh, that came up from this past weekend, which which came up so many times. It was like almost every major match this weekend it came up. Uh, I mean, VAR. There's been so many examples um, of why the rules of football need to change in order to keep up with VAR to be used in, in a meaningful manner. And, and, and personally, which I, I'm being kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek here, a little bit at least, I, I blame Sean Ingle from the Football Weekly podcast because anyone who listens to the Football Weekly podcast probably about 10 years ago, Sean would go on episode after episode, every single episode, saying, this is ridiculous. We need to have video technology. And here we are, probably like, what, about 10 years later, we have it. Sean's been pretty quiet on the topic uh, as of late. Um, but, I mean, it's just a complete and utter mess. And, and the thing is, is to me, at the end of the day, the reason that the offside rule was introduced way back when, you know, well, I don't know, 50, 100 years ago, whatever it was, was because people were what the British would call goal hanging and what the Americans would call cherry picking. You mean standing, you mean near the goal, just trying to knock the ball in the back of the net. And we're at a point too where it's down to the millimetre, which is so frustrating to watch. I mean, there were so many games this past weekend where there was Norwich against Spurs, um, I mean, Wolves against Liverpool. Or these these games where the matches, I mean, you're kind of rooting for the underdog. And it seems that the underdog in most of the examples were the ones that got screwed in this. Um, and it does take out the enjoyment of the game to, to you mean, think that, oh, man, maybe Norwich can beat Spurs because of uh, this one call where, where Pookie is off side by, you mean, like, I don't know, two or three inches or two or three millimetres. Karthik, what, what's your take on this? I, I know you watched a lot of uh, Premier League football. Yeah, and I guess everyone who follow, follows me on Twitter knows my take on it, that uh, I think that there are uh, things that uh, about the sport of football and natural reactions of players, managers, supporters that are being uh, neutered by the way VAR has been implemented. Now, then people get into theoretical discussions with me, and I, I don't want to, I know I'm going to offend a lot of people here. Most of the people who argue with me are Americans who are used to their sports starting and stopping constantly, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they, don't, they don't seem to get the exhilaration of being in a ground uh, if you're a Wolves supporter, and you get that goal right before halftime. And it turns out Johnny is uh, a, a toenail uh, off when he, and when, he, when he plays the ball to, to uh, uh, the player who scored. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Stuart Robson actually believes the line might have been drawn incorrectly. And that it was subjective the way the line was drawn. He 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 delved into the debate last night uh, saying that. Uh, so I, I think that there's so much about the sport that we love, and we saw this with the Women's World Cup this summer, this past summer, that has just been torn apart by VAR and the way it's been implemented. Now, is there uh, technology? Robbie Musto talked about this on uh, NBC's coverage this weekend. Is there technology that could make it more seamless, uh, give you an instant decision? I don't know if we have that yet, but until we have that, I think it's too disruptive to the way football is played. And I'm also, as I pointed out uh, again on Twitter, disappointed that it seems like it's the underdogs. I mean, this league has huge inequities to begin with, the Premier League. It's uh, it's not a, a fair fight. It's not a fair competition. And I know we're going to get into a little bit of that when we talk to John about his book. Uh, it's not. It, it doesn't have all the... Uh, of uh, of fairness 20, 25, 30 years ago. Now, it seems like all of these VAR calls are going 
Wolves, Norwich, Sheffield United. And it just leaves a very bad taste in the mouth of most neutrals, I think, and certainly of club supporters and of players and managers. You know, you've seen the, the, the post-match interviews with Chris Wilders and the Nunos and, and, and the managers that have um, the, the, the wrong end of, uh, of our decision. So uh, I, I can't register enough my, uh, my displeasure with it. Now, John, your latest book is uh, Can We Have Our Football Back? I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Kartik has. But is, is there any discussion of VAR in there? If, if not, I mean, what's your take on it in terms of being somebody who writes for Football 365, who's very much kind of the voice of the people in terms of kind of the, the average football supporter in the UK? And, and, and uh, oftentimes you raise a lot of topics that uh, many others do not cover. I don't touch on it um, in detail in the book because I felt as if um, I'd covered it so much in so many pieces over the last couple of years. However, my basic position on it is I'm against it philosophically as much as for any other reason. I've always been against it. I was against its introduction. I'm against it as a concept because I think sport is a human endeavour. And uh, what we try to do when we play sport is we try to play it to the best of our ability while accepting that we will uh, make mistakes and, um, you know, things won't go right. And that is the essence of what sport is and what technology, when you bring it into sport, is doing is taking away the humanity of it and judging it like it's science. And there's facts and there's fictions and we draw lines, and that isn't what sport is to me. Um, I think that uh, the mistakes are the grit that makes the pearl. Now, that's a philosophical position, uh, and I'm that kind of guy. I'm, a, I'm what I call a close enough for rock and roll guy, which just means I'm not bothered if the guitar is just a little bit out of tune. It's close enough for rock and roll. But other people aren't like that. Other people want the, the, every decision to be correct, and it really bothers them if the decisions aren't correct. And it's never bothered me that 5 or 6% of decisions that referees make are wrong. I see that as intrinsic to the nature of um, humans playing sport. So it was also obvious to me that when it was introduced, all it would essentially do was introduce another layer of human error into it. Um, so now we've got people discussing whether the people who are looking at the screen are getting it any more right than the, the people who are looking looking at it on the pitch, you know, the referees on the pitch. And uh, I just don't think, I, d I just don't see any way to resolve this. Um, the only way to resolve it, you either have it and you accept things will be wrong, um, or you don't have it and you accept things will be wrong. Now, I think that given exactly as KK says there about, um, about how it is um, interrupting the flow of energy from crowd, from game to crowd, and how it basically... Football's great money shot is the goal, and now you've you've devalued that massively by having a kind of this coitus interrupters moment. Um, it's worth bearing in mind that football became the biggest, most popular sport on earth, and also one of the richest by not having VAR. I would, if I was investing money in football, I would be worried that I'm devaluing my brand and devaluing my investments by making football less compelling by turning people off it. So I think the long people say it's here to stay, I'm not so sure it is. I'm really not. I think you've got when you've got crowds um, in stadiums who've paid fifty quid a ticket chanting "fuck VAR." Mm -hmm. I think um, 
I think, you know, a rule change like this or a, a kind of a technology change can't withstand infinite amounts of negativity from press, high-profile pundits and the paying customers. So I think um, we'll look back on it as a, a temporary aberration of madness and that I was right all along. That's the most important thing to realise is that I was right and everyone else was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess in many ways too, it's it's kind of who is in power to make those decisions that ultimately will impact the the sport of football. So whether it's uh, FIFA at their level, you mean in terms of or oh, IFAB or or, or the uh, PGMOL or, or the Premier League themselves, which the way that the Premier League has uh, kind of uh, brought out far, it seems to be almost like branded kind of with their with the logo and, and it's um, very much a Premier League experience with the marketing and the colours. Um, but if anything, it's probably been the worst rollout of all of ours from around you mean, Major League Soccer, Bundesliga, around, around the different leagues, the top leagues in, in, the, in the world. Uh, one quick thing, Chris, that I, I want to touch on what John said, and it's so important, is the extra layer of subjectivity. Because the proponents of our for years sold this as we're taking the human error. And I agree with John, human error and some of the most compelling discussions we have, like, for example, with Leeds United supporters, is about 1975 and the European Cup final against Bayern or, or uh, the UEFA Cup final against AC Milan, where they lost on officiating decisions. It's part of what we talk about in the sport. VAR proponents for years, John, sold us on, oh, we're going to take the subjectivity out of it, the human error out of it, and all you're going to have is uh, perfect officiating. Well, I would uh, state that I believe that the the – additional layer of subjectivity you mentioned, John, that you rightly said before this was implemented would be there has increased the margin of error in terms mm. of these calls. And now we have uh, another set of eyes and another set of opinions and another set of interpretations that are making are, are taking football even further and further away from the norm and further and further away from the supporters who made it the most popular game in the world. And it's also worth bearing in mind that the rules of the game were set for a game that is not played with uh, this kind of technological scrutiny. So the offside law, as it w- was was there, um, and was judged upon with human eyes, not with um, not with a, a lens and a and a slow motion camera. So you know we're trying to, in one sense, introduce digital rules to an analog game mm-hmm. and that's why it doesn't really work you know because we're looking at where the uh, player's leg or arm or knee or beard in Pookie's case uh, was when the ball was played but we don't really know when the ball was played because is it when he when the uh, pass first foot first touches the ball or is it when the passer's uh, foot touches the ball and moves the ball or is it when the ball leaves the foot we haven't got a ruling on that because we never needed one. So we're basically we're trying to force a square peg into a round hole, and that's another reason why there's just so much discontent about it. You know, it's not it's a it's a kind of technology made for a world that the rules of football were not crafted in. So is there any any surprise it doesn't work? But I have to say, even if it worked 100 percent of the time, all the time. I would still be philosophically opposed to it. I just don't like the idea that we edit our reality after the fact. I think it's a one-shot deal. That's what's great about sport. It's a one-shot deal. You know, you try and do your best. Mostly you get it right. Sometimes you get it wrong. We don't ask players who make mistakes to go back and take the penalty again because the, the because they got it, they hit it the wrong over the bar or something. I'm not sure why we're um, 
were so sort of um, sensitive about decisions that are made about, you know, certain things that happen, but only in certain parts of the pitch. One of the pieces I wrote a couple of years ago was saying how I believe football is not a... You can't divide it up this bit is important, but this bit isn't. So we'll use the technology for the for the first phase that leads to a goal, but not the fourth phase prior to that. I think football is all interconnected. What happens if, say, Leicester are playing, the guy throwing in their own third, someone throws it into Madison, who boots it long to Vardy, and uh, who scores a goal. What happens if then we see that actually that throwing was incorrectly given to them? Mm-hmm. We don't go back and uh, cancel the goal out, because that's deemed too far away. Now, that's just silly, isn't it? You see, because once you introduce VAR, uh, once you introduce the principle of you mu- we must get decisions right, then you're going to introduce it for everything. Be either have it for nothing or have it for everything. Because otherwise, you've exponentially increased the degree of unfairness. You know, because it's just unfair that, uh, oh, well, he handballed it uh, eight moves back, but we only take the VAR for three moves. So, you know, it's just not right, is it? All you're doing is just making people more and more frustrated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see this is why people are so angry about it now, you know? It's, it's creating more problems. Yeah, and, and this is an ideal segue to talk about your book, John, because mm-hmm. um, I mean, can we have our football back? I mean, really talks about, I mean, television in many ways and, and the impact that television has had on watching football, especially the Premier League, uh, but, but you mean, all, all major football leagues. But... I mean, the VAR leads into that in terms of, you I mean, it, these types yeah. of things have changed changed the nature of how we experience the game. So for, for the, the listeners who uh, aren't familiar with the book yet, uh, what's the concept of the book and, and the main points that, that it emphasizes? I wrote it because I just for years have had a really gnawing sense of discontentment about the Premier League and um, so many aspects of it, which most of which rotated around the money, and that rotates around the um, fees paid for rights, for broadcast rights. That's really where the big money's come from, and that's really what's changed the nature of football. And as you say, say, VAR is a televisual thing. Nobody who ever went to a football ground sat there thinking, I wish we could just stop playing and look at that again and get another decision. We just accepted what happened, then we went home. But television audiences, because they've already got it all there to, to look at, they've effectively, the demand has come from that. So it's a, the whole VR thing is inextricably linked with the football being largely a televisual sport. Indeed, one of the things I felt discontented about was the fact that fans who go to games didn't seem to matter anymore. Um, they get pushed from pillar to post, kick-off times, are made incredibly convenient for people without any concern. Ticket prices have been going up largely most of the time. Um, we've been to, we've, the Premier League have tried to pass off the idea that half of the tickets are thirty pounds or under, as though thirty pounds isn't a load of money. And I felt as if um, the Premier League had normalised a kind of extreme economic model and sold it to us as though it was um, as though it was kind of nothing to worry about and I just found the whole pernicious effect of the wealth um, disturbing on a on a kind of moral level really I don't think we should be afraid to say um, that well, we find it immoral that somebody might earn £350,000 a week and then get £75,000 if he actually plays which was uh, Alexis Sanchez case at Manchester United I just uh, so I was just felt this gnawing sense of something wasn't right. And when I 
spoke to loads of people about it, and I spoke to a lot of people in broadcasting and in the game itself about it. This was a view which was commonly shared, that we had this feeling like this isn't the game we loved, that we grew up with, something's happened. So I wrote the book to try and pull all of this together. Now, yeah. Now, yeah, now, John. I mean, for for TV viewers like most of the listeners are listening to the show, I mean, we we're, we're kind of reaping the rewards of, of of the Premier League in terms of, you mean, all the matches being available. Actually, we can watch any of the matches in in America, just as one example. The the television coverage is um, one of the best in the world. The Bundesliga is probably a little bit better in terms of the production value, but the amount of cameras in the stadium. Uh, oftentimes, I feel that almost going to a match and being in the ground is sometimes not as good of an experience as watching it on television because television got all the replays, you got so many things you can take advantage of that you couldn't in the actual stadium itself. In some ways, though, too, I mean, as kind of a playing devil's advocate, I'm watching these matches and most of those stadiums are full. I mean, it's, yeah. there's very few, few empty seats. So, so the Premier League and the Premier League clubs are probably saying like, well, it's not really impacting attendance that much. It's really not impacting... You I mean we we don't have as much crowd trouble as before? So so they may say like, what what's the problem? Like I, they don't see a problem. Do you do you think that yeah. they're, they're thinking along those lines? Well, I certainly think that the Premier League have um, in their twenty seven year long uh, c- propaganda campaign have cleverly managed to conflate the popularity of football with the popularity of their brand and of their economic model. But of course, football has always been popular. People love football. The biggest crowds in the UK for um, for most clubs came in the 40s and 50s and have still yet to be beaten. People have always gone to football in extraordinary numbers, and indeed they still do. And it's worth saying this, uh, that more people, there are more attendances at games that are not the Premier League than there are if you add up all the Premier League attendances. In other words, football is just... The, the the British game. Um, it is in Scotland where I live. Um, it is the highest attended league per capita. I for the, the highest amount percentage of the population of the country go to watch football in the whole of Europe. And we're only a small country, but it's kind of um, it, it's. I mean, like where I live, there are uh, within twenty. 20 miles where I live, there are four professional clubs. And they're just, you know, in a very small kind of um, very small towns. It just goes to prove how popular and how pervasive the popularity of football is. However, um, I wouldn't conflate the fact that people are loyal to football with they're not always being happy with how it's played and um, with the cost of playing it. Because, of course, what we've done as particularly in the Premier League, is disenfranchise um, large amounts of the working class who basically elevated football to its status as the major sport because it's too expensive. And um, while other people take their place, uh, that doesn't mean to say that we... Uh, that doesn't mean to say this is the ideal situation. I think it was the people's game, and now it's become an elite sort of people's game, which is no longer available to regular people. And uh, I think the economic model that brought us to this position is a pernicious one that damages both the society, the economy, and even the planets. I mean, I do a whole thing in the book on how the uh, promulgation of extreme wealth is at the core of um, climate cri- the climate crisis we suffer from, because the only point of being rich is to be able to buy loads of stuff, and we know we, we have to stop consuming stuff. 
um, in order to save the resources of the planet and to stop global warming. So in a kind of uh, a rather elastic move, I, I, uh, I consider the Earth is dying because of Alexis Sanchez. <laughs> now, uh, now, now, Carter, you bought uh, John's book. You've, you've read yeah. John's book. Um, what questions do you have for John? I have, I have a few, and, and I have to say, I, I, and uh, I'm not trying to make this a love fest, but I agree with 95% of what's in this book because uh, listeners of this show know that I've been for many years, and Chris, you and I have had you know some, some heated discussions about this, uh, disappointed and, and, and growing from disappointment to disgusting, disgusted with the uh, accessibility of the Premier League, the, the kind of oligarch structure of the Premier League. Uh, I've drifted in my own preferences towards the Bundesliga, not because I think the football's better, but because they have an economic model, and there's still flaws there, don't get me wrong, but um, they have an economic model that still puts supporters and community above um the the, uh, the globalization and the uh, the mass wealth, but John, I want to ask you about accessibility specifically because uh, you make a great point great points in your book about Sky. It's the same points I hear from my supporter friends uh, in the UK, and um, the ticket prices, which have limited accessibility, have limited the ability for the working class to go to football matches, to travel, to follow their teams away from home in football matches, and uh, the kickoff times due to Sky, which have prevented working class fans from, let's say, Newcastle, Sunderland, Borough, from the north uh, east of the country, getting down to London for a late kickoff on a Sunday because they can't get back. There's no train that's going to get them back in time for work the next day. Um, expand a little bit more on your thoughts on that. Well, I think this is the uh, outworkings of the cultural and economic thinking that is the model behind the Premier League, which is that... Um, the actual people in the ground have been disregarded all along. Now, we can say that people are still turning up, and that is absolutely true. But without fans, football isn't a product that you can sell at all. There's nobody paying broadcast rights fees for uh, games played out to empty grounds. Um, so my approach to this is that the fans are... And the, the kind of foot soldiers, as, you, as it were, of football are the most important people. They're who we are, who it is played for. And without our money, without our participation, without our presence, um, it all goes away. All the wealth and riches and power, they all disappear. But without, you know, to put it in a, a basic way, we're the customer. And um, they're selling us a product. And if we ain't buying it, for whatever reason, be it economic or moral or ecological, then... Um, They've got a product. So uh, I feel as though if we are discontented with this st state of affairs, and I think we are, and I think it is well proven that, um, that uh, football is the most popular sport in Britain, and um, there is a huge appetite to watch on television, because when it's on free-to-air, up to 30 million people will watch a game. 30.4 million people watch England play Croatia. Um, in the World Cup semi-final in 2018, which is the single highest uh, single-channel audience ever in the history of UK broadcasting. The only two things have been higher, but they were broadcast across two channels. This was just on ITV. So we know there's a huge demand to watch it on TV, but there is not a huge demand, never has been, still isn't, probably never will be, to pay to watch football on TV. The audiences are relatively modest, ranging from anything below 200,000 on BT Sport up to 2 million 
at best, really, on Sky. Sky scores showed 128 games last year. 112 of them didn't get 2 million. Um, so we know that there's a huge resistance to paying to watch football. Now, why would that be? Well, I suggest that people who love football know one thing about it. It's incredibly inconsistent. It's the only thing that we go and watch week after week. That is often shite for years on end. Um, and you see terrible games, but you still go back to see a club the next week. That makes football a really unique product. But we know that, that when it comes to paying a subscription of, you know, whatever it is, up to £70 a month to watch it, uh, that that's not good value. Because, you know, it's one thing to watch your own team. It's another to watch West Ham v Southampton melt your eyeballs um, and pay 10 quid for the, pro- for the privilege. So I think what the whole model has done has, um, has separated uh, uh, the, the, the passion of football fans from the football. I think it's... And I, in the book, I explore how I think it's alienated people from the game and uh, what it's done to our kind of uh, even down to our mental health to see these billionaires kicking a ball around to very little um, entertainment value uh, in order to make themselves and uh, everyone else in the game rich but make us poorer so um, it's very hard to actually just slice one bit the whole book is very much a, it's like a if you're familiar with progressive rock it's like a concept album you can't really you can't divide off one track you've got to listen to the whole thing so uh, there's a lot of points that I'm making it really they're all interconnected it, yeah, it's, it's a point I make about a Pink Floyd album, Chris. You'll appreciate this. The Wall 40th anniversary was a couple of weeks ago, and people were taking individual tracks and listening to it. And I said, "You can't do that. No, no, listen to the whole thing." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, John, I mean, I mean, a lot of this can be attributed back to Sky Sports and, and just the creation of the Premier League, uh, in terms of some yeah. of the, the, many of the issues that we have today, where. I, I see the Premier League as really not a league of England and, and Wales, but really more of a global league that mm. ha- happens to be situated in England and Wales where the matches are, are, are played there. Um, and it is a global audience. It's a massive global audience and massive global TV revenue fees that have been paid in to, to watch this global event. And it's something, too, you can go on social media yesterday or this past weekend and just see people from around the world just talking about these matches, whether in Africa, Asia, Australasia, Americas, you name it. But for for you, John, though, what what if what if Sky Sports never happened and the, and the Premier League never happened? What's what's your thoughts on where we would be today? I mean, in terms of yeah. what was the first division? Would it have stayed the first division? Would I mean how how would things look differently if Sky Sports hadn't entered the market? Right. Well, I'll answer that in a minute. But just to go go back to your previous point about it being a globally huge thing. I thought that was the case too, and then I started to look into the numbers. Now, uh, typically, and the numbers are very opaque, right? In other words, they're very hard to get hold of and to get hold of accurate numbers and to what they refer to, um, which that made me suspicious from the start. If I've got something that's really successful, which billions of people are watching, I'm I'm shouting about it. I'm not keeping it quiet. But anyway, it turns out the average global audience for any Premier League game, and this is the average, is 10 million. So obviously some will be 2 million, some will be 50 million. But the average per game is 10 million. So in every round of um, of matches, of 10 matches, about 100 million people, possibly, at the very maximum, though it won't be that because people will watch more than one game, are watching it. Now, we live on a planet, excuse me, of 7.2 billion people. So I think we can see that almost nobody's watching the Premier League almost all of the time. 
and it isn't really something which is um, as big as we think it is. Now, where it is big, and again, the Premier League is very, very clever here in conflating um, the fact it's the most watched league in the world, which it absolutely is the most watched, with it being incredibly popular. They have taken, they often roll total viewer numbers into one big ball to try and sell it as incredibly popular. I'll give you an example. Um, the, the Premier League states that 46.2 million people in the UK watched the Premier League. I quote that, watched the Premier League on TV in 2018-19. Now, I thought there's only 65 million people in Britain. I thought 46 million people did not watch it. But it turns out what it is, is across the whole nine-month season, that 46 million um, counts anybody who has seen three consecutive minutes across nine months. Now, my missus has watched three consecutive minutes of Premier League football and has absolutely no desire to be counted as a viewer of it because she doesn't like football or is interested in it at all. So what you can see is that we start to roll numbers together and say things about them which aren't which suggests something which grows as an idea in our head. So we think, everybody's watching the Premier League. But no, it's not. There's a lot of people have seen a little bit and aren't really that interested, but they're counted too. What we think when we hear watch the Premier League is watched a game, but it isn't that. It's, it's the, the figures are based on three minutes consecutively. You're, you, you're counted as a viewer of a Premier League match if you've watched three minutes. So... Just wanted to put that caveat in there that we all think there is almost a cognitive dissonance about this. We all think it's incredibly popular, and they go anywhere in the world, and people will talk about it. And that is true because it is the most watched league. But the numbers in and of themselves are not that great. I'll give you another, just by contrast, in 2015, Top Gear, one program, one show, had an audience of 350 million. So with that 10 million per game starts to look a little bit more weedy when you put it up against something that's genuinely popular. Now, what was your other question, Chris? <laughs> Go uh, off on one. It's there. okay. No, yeah, no worries. The other question was what what would have happened to the first division or English football oh, yeah. uh, without Sky Sports uh, coming yeah. in in the nineties? I mean, the, the, we needed investment in football desperately because um, for too long. Um, English stadiums and English clubs had treat supporters like so much cattle, which explained a lot of things like the the heinous Bradford fire and uh, all the other troubles in Hillsborough that we had in the 80s. And that was through lack of investment, largely because directors had hived off the profits. There's always been plenty of money to be made in football um, and they'd never been invested in grounds. So we'd certainly needed something to change. Um, but did we need to lock football away behind a paywall? And what effect has that had on our society when you deny access to the most popular sport to the vast majority of people? And I suggest um, that we've, you know, we've suffered a huge uh, negative impact of that and that, um, that it's taken us down a, an economic route that we ought never to have gone. Had, we, had it never happened, I think we would have less money in the game, which I would consider a good thing. Um, I think we would have, we could have regulated better to ensure that a certain percentage of the profits from the larger clubs were distributed further down the league. That's got worse over the years, the, the drip-down effect. And I think there's lots of things, actions we could have took 
in terms of uh, structure and organisation and funding of the game um, to um, just still ensure it was healthy, but just not that it was a place where you could become a billionaire overnight or one that would attract Russian oligarchs or Middle Eastern oil tycoons to invest in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see those investments as a good thing. I think they're, they're probably the root cause of many people's discontent with it, really. Now, now, now John, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead, Kartik. Yeah, uh, John, I wanted to... Uh, ask you again about Sky Sports because you, you talk about in the book uh, kind of the anti-intellectual drift of, of football coverage coming from Sky versus what, what we tend to see on the BBC and ITV. And it's something I've complained a lot about on this show the last few seasons is that I've even noticed the television coverage in the NB, in, uh, of, on NBC, which has been quite good compared to Sky, uh, of the Premier League becoming more talking points, more propaganda, more um, league fluff. Uh, soap opera. Yeah, soap opera. Do you think that drift is uh, is down specifically to Sky and Premier League, or is it a general uh, direction of the kind of newer fan that the Premier League has attracted, this uh, higher-end uh, fan without roots in football, without the, the historical basis and historical knowledge of, of football in England? That's a really interesting question, KK. I really... I don't, I don't know if I've got a really kind of good glib answer to that. I think that's part of a broader societal trend towards um, towards kind of instant gratification. So detailed, more intellectual culture discussion, let's call it slow food, um, takes a backseat to, um, to fast food and to a quick hit. So we'll have a lot more contention about... Paul Pogba, for example. I mean, the Pogba thing is a whole is a very good example of this. The the, the papers on Sky Two are obsessed with with Pogba, and, you know, and they always and this is again one of the products of it becomes such a a wealthy game is we've commodified footballers so that they are as though they are products on a shelf, and we know this because, like for example, Pogba will be just called Paul Pogba. It'll be ninety million pound Paul Pogba. And uh, and or is three or four hundred thousand pound a week, Paul Pogba. Um, and so I think the way that we're sold football in those more shallow discussions is part of that what you might call clickbait culture, I guess. <clears throat> but that being said, I think the quality of football programmes and analysis in the UK has probably never been better than it is now. I think that we have seen a rise of a punditocracy which does its work. There are some, still some examples who don't, but I think most of them do. On the radio, this is why I listen to the radio all the time, um, it is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's, I consider it university-grade education. You, know, you get everything in terms of details with tactics. You get everything in terms of history. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I just think it is a different sort of class of product on the radio, really. So, but, you know, the worst aspects of it, the sidebar of shame, as we call it in the UK, aspect of it is certainly a product of the modern media mentality, really. All right, John. So, so, Ashley, for those listeners who are curious about the book, so so I know, like for example, I mean, it's, it's available in many different places. But what would you recommend is the best place that they go and buy it? And and then the second question is, if you can give us a little bit, like maybe a little teaser too about some of the other content that's in the book yeah. that will uh, entice people to to go ahead and order the copy today. Well, 
the best place to get it from, where I make the most money from it from, is just direct from my website, which is johnnicholsonwriter.co.uk. We ship books all over the world. It's been massively popular. We've sold thousands and thousands of copies. Um, and it's really pushed an open door for a lot of people. Um, let's think. I interviewed a lot of people um, in the media and in football for this. So, for example, I uh, I talked to Niall Sloan, who's mm-hmm. the head of ITV Sport. And he told me basically a lot of inside information about uh, how little regard there is within the government and within some broadcasters, how small the audiences on TV are. So that was a really fascinating interview. I talked to a, to a professional uh, footballer who's playing in the top flight at the moment, in the Premier League at the moment, who is um, embarrassed by the amount of money he earns and largely gives it all away. And he talked to me about uh, what his life was like and how um, he gets £200,000 into his bank account every month and has done for pretty much 15 years now. And he said, I just don't need any more money. The fact that we just keep getting money endlessly is he thinks it's immoral. Um, So he he makes plans to give it all away and to dispute it. Uh, I talked to a coach in the game who said he thought the money had ruined it uh, because it just basically um, had spoiled the relationship between fans and players and managers and players uh, because people suddenly, uh, he also thought it uh, had increased the abuse culture uh, because people are paying so much. I see these people earning ridiculous amounts of wages. They feel justified in abusing them in any way whatsoever, in a way that never used to quite be the case. But I also talked to lots of broadcasters, all the major commentators I spoke to as well. There's loads of information from the inside of football in the book. It isn't just me shouting from the rooftops about mad ideas I've had. Um, I actually talked to other people to say, I basically wanted to go to people who work in the business and go, I've had these ideas. Am I crazy? And uh, the answer came back, you are crazy, but that, but this is sensible. This is <laughs> so, so like, um, I mean, I put it at one point, but when you are in an extreme position, as we are now, I think we're in an extreme economic model, uh, the centre ground looks a long way away. So all I'm talking about is just being having a kind of a more sane financial structure to how, uh, how it all works out and about having, which we haven't talked about yet, but having uh, football on free-to-air television. Mm-hmm the greater good and I make an economic argument for that but um, it seems extreme what I'm talking about seems extreme naive and probably idealistic but that's only because we dwell on the margins of sanity at the moment where we are you know the average Premier League wage the average wage is 3 million a year and uh, plenty are on 20 Um, so I think well we're just really uh, because we've had something that is extremist really normalized um so my thinking seems a long way from that but really it's just common sense a lot of it um but we've just been led away from common sense by the uh, the glitter of gold yeah, the glitter of gold. I mean, that would probably be a good uh, subtitle uh, t- to the book too. And uh, in many ways, I mean, we could go on for hours about this, John, because we really appreciate you coming on the show. We've had you on the past uh, 
quite a few times when it was the EPL Talk podcast. Now, now of course, the World Soccer Talk podcast. So, and we've enjoyed from afar, from across uh, across the pond, uh, reading your columns at Football Three Sixty Five. For, for for listeners who want to indulge themselves, not just on your book, uh, John, but on some of your writings, um, where's the best place to go to to, to read up on your uh, great articles? Well, so yeah, if you go to johnnicholsonwriter.co.uk, you'll find all my non-fiction books there. But also, I'm a crime novelist as well these days. Since last time I talked to you, That's I right. developed a career as a crime novelist. And I have a mere 16 novels uh, that are available there as well. And you can, see, you can get them in bookshops and on Amazon as well. But, um, yes, I've got all of that. Obviously, I do two things a week for Football 365. Still doing that 20, in my 20th year now doing that so yeah that's where that's where i live so come and join me at some point if you can okay kartik let's move on to tv streaming news uh, since we took a week uh break over the holidays for christmas uh we've got a lot of news to catch up on and, and first of all uh, uh, have you started off yeah the might, might have noticed that uh, we haven't heard P- Peter Drury uh, the last few weeks, and that's because uh, he's taken a leave of absence to take ca- uh, care for his mother who is ill. No word on when he'll uh, return to commentating, but in the meantime, he's been replaced by Gary Weaver uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and that's the thing, though, too, is like sometimes um, you don't know how so- popular somebody is until uh, they're not there, and then there's a whole bunch of people that, that respond saying, asking where he is and, and giving thoughts. And on social media, I mean, Peter Drury is, is a very um, mixed reaction in terms of most uh, soccer fans. Some people love him, some people don't like him. Um, but, uh, I mean, he is one of the top uh, commentators for the Premier League. And there's been a ton of people on social media that have asked me and, and others, uh, Jim Be- Beglin especially, um, what, what's been happening. And uh, so so that's why uh, Peter's not on as much as, as we're used to having him on. So hopefully, hopefully he'll be back soon. In the next news item, uh, BN Sports has recently announced that BN Sports Extra will be uh, available immediately in 15 major markets across the U.S. on HC2 stations. So it's HC2 uh, stations in Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, San Jose, San Francisco, Oakland, Atlanta, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, San Diego, Salt Lake City, Hartford, Columbus, Las Vegas, and Austin, among others. HC2 Broadcasting has 195 operational stations in over 130 U.S. markets, including 34 of the top 35 markets across the United States. According to a BN Sports executive, uh, BN Sports is now the first network to air advertiser-friendly live sports 24-7 on broadcast channels to nearly 7 million households. So I think we need to almost like deconstruct this a little bit just to make sure that everybody understands. So this is not BN Sports, the main channel, or BN Sports en Español, the Spanish channel. It's BN Sports Extra, which is their free channel, which is available, as we announced a, few, a couple of weeks ago, on Roku. Uh, as well as on uh, beingsportsextra.com. What it is, is it's select programming from being sports. So it's a lot of uh, Ligue 1 matches, um, some La Liga matches, but it does not contain any Real Madrid, Barcelona, or Atleti matches. Those are not included on this. Um, and so those that channel now, Being Sports Extra, the free channel, is available over the air in select cities. Um, what about you, Kartik? I'm not sure if you've had a chance to kind of check and see HC2 and, and basically 
if you have some rabbit ears that you can put in and check to see. But have you had a chance to look at this? I have not, but my understanding is if you if you connect your rabbit ears to uh, the TV, uh, you can get a digital uh, HD2. Uh, uh, you can get the HD, uh, HD, HC2 stations in this market, uh, in, okay. in the Mi- Fort Lauderdale, Miami market, Miami Fort Lauderdale market. And uh, BN Sports uh, Extra is uh, now available. Yeah, it's a workaround because, I mean, obviously, still BN Sports is not on DirecTV and is not on Comcast. It'll probably never be back on Comcast. Um, DirecTV is always a possibility, uh, although it's owned by AT&T, so maybe not. Um, and this is a workaround that BN Sports has done and say, okay, how can we get our programming on uh, available to consumers directly, uh, kind of circumventing the uh, the cable and satellite companies. And they've done that through the Roku, the BN Sports Extra channel. Now they're doing this through um, this HC2 for the free-to-air channels. Uh, we'll get more into this into the listener mailbag. We've got some questions about this. Next up, Kartik, uh, some big news from Major League Soccer. Yeah, MLS has unveiled its 25th season broadcast uh, schedule details, which features an all-time high 46 uh, network broadcast windows across ABC, Fox, Univision, and Unimas. Uh, In the U.S., the nationally broadcast matches will be available in both English and Spanish language through ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN Deportes, as well as Fox, FS1, Fox Deportes. Uh, There is a separate slate of matches that will also air on Univision, Unimas, and Dudiene. Uh, ESPN will broadcast a total of 31 matches, including 10 on ABC, which is the most since the 1999 season, by the way, uh, so the most in over 20 years. Univision will see 32 games across Univision and Unimas, with all games uh, simulcast on 2DNA. 14 games will air on Univision Network and 18 matches on on Unimas. Uh, The 14 games on Univision are quite a coup. Uh, We see the ratings for those matches, even for uh, Liga Mekis games, tend to be significantly higher. Yeah, more games on over-the-air television is good news for soccer fans, no matter what league you watch. Um, What it does for Major League Soccer is that uh, it will has the potential to bump up the numbers. So, for example, for 2019 compared to 2018, the numbers were down. Uh, But for 2020, it's very likely that with all these games on over-the-air television, the numbers for 2020 will be up uh, compared to 2019. So it's a good story. Uh, It's a good story to give to advertisers and to the ESPNs and Univisions and Foxes of the world in terms of when the rights come up for renewal in 2022. Also, it's a good thing to talk to Amazon or talk to uh, DAZN or uh, CBS or anyone else who might be interested in bidding on on, on Major League Soccer rights is if MLS can come in at the end of 2020 and say, hey, Look at this num- the, the numbers we got this season. This season were much higher than than last season, uh, and 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 don't don't look at the numbers too closely to to see that actually a lot of these games were on over the air television. But but the other thing too, it's accessibility. It makes Major League Soccer more accessible to soccer fans, where it makes it easier for them to to come across games, to find games instead of games being stuck on ESPN Plus. TV ratings, we won't go into a lot of them because um, we will publish them at worldsoccertalk.com uh, but also with the holidays too some of the numbers are delayed but w- what we do know the two big numbers um, first of all for the Liga MX uh, final the first leg which was at home for Monterrey against uh, Club America uh, this game was on Fox Deportes 
Fox has the rights to um, Monterey's home games. And this was on last Thursday night. The viewership for this one was 1.3 million viewers. Uh, it was also on FS1 uh, Live, which actually, Kartik, we didn't mention that. So FS1, I watched, I, I, know, I, knew you, I know you mentioned it, but I, I watched the game on, in English on FS1, Kobe Jones uh, co-commentating, and I think it was Adrian Garcia Marquez, I think it was, uh, doing yeah. the, the lead comment, commentary. Um, Kobe and Adrian seem to have their own language when they're commentating games. Like, a lot of weird expressions or descriptions of things that were happening that... I mean, Kobe Jones talking about a player getting hit in the groin, and he he was talking about getting hit in the trunk, and and uh, just strange things that Kobe and Adrian said that that kind of turned me off to the actual broadcast, the commentary. But nonetheless, uh, I, th- I believe the FS1 number, which hasn't been reported, but it's approximately about a hundred thousand viewers watched that game in English. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the the second leg of that is uh, on Univision and Tuduene. I'm sure it's a huge number. Uh, and then El Clasico, which is almost forgotten in all of this, Kartik, because, I mean, I watched it. It was a boring game. It was Wednesday, 2 p.m. kickoff. It was uh, you know, not a lot of enthusiasm for El Clasico, especially with it being on a weekday uh, during office hours. Uh, 354,000 viewers tuned into this one to watch it on Bean Sports and Bean Sports in Espanol combined, which is not... <laughs> that's not a good number if that's your flagship game for the biggest match of the year, I mean, the first of two uh, on, I mean, not for La Liga. To me, that, that is not impressive. All right, listener mailbag. We've got a bunch to catch up here on Kartik. Some great feedback from our listeners. First up is Robert. And Robert says, I am a big fan of John Nicholson, and he's partly the blame for getting me so stirred up. It will be great that you will have him on the podcast. There was a similar book from 2014 called Taking Our Ball Back by Martin Cloak. It covered much of the same ground. John, the Fiverr crew, and I all see the world much the same way. Great show. Did not expect so many of my comments to make the show. Now will the comments about the podcast throw some tomatoes my way? Or tomatoes. I, I don't No tomatoes going uh, Robert's way this time. I think um, Robert's spot on in terms of um, some of his thoughts and, and welcome feedback. Next up is Jiminy. And this is in response to, I think, uh, some of the comments that you made, Kartik. I don't think Rebecca or any other presenters viewed as a journalist or with an ex- expectation that they should only speak in facts. Maybe the issue is with the American audience's interpretation and the American idea that there is or should be a clear-cut best league. Any... Uh... Yeah, I think that that's right. I think Jimmy's right because uh, I always get questions. Oh, is this the best league? Is that the best league? I, that's, I think, a very American thing that everything has to be the best. Everything has to be the top. Everything has to be better than uh, every, anything American has to be better than anything that's not American, right? Yeah. That's an American mentality. So yeah, I think the Premier League fits into that same thing as all these Americans who have adopted of the Premier League or have come to football through the Premier League, it has to be uh, the best league in the world. And again, um, there is a certain arrogance about the Premier League. I, I direct back to, and if people haven't watched it, watch ESPN FC. If you have ESPN Plus, you can go back and watch the Sunday, December 29th, ESPN FC. Stuart Robson makes very clear that he believes a lot of these problems with the Premier League, particularly with VAR, are due to their own arrogance and their own self-belief that they're somehow superior to every other league and every other form of football. So um, I think it, it kind of is maybe a direction from the league as well. But I agree with Jimmy. I think it's part of its American mentality. 
Yeah, one more thing to add to what uh, Jiminy says is that um, I, I, I hate how comparisons are made to American sports oftentimes. Like from this past week, or actually this past weekend, I, saw, I think I saw a headline or an article that talks about uh, how Diego Maradona is the Babe Ruth of soccer. And, and to me, I had a laugh at that because it's probably it probably doesn't exist in that you, you wouldn't do the same to to soccer that you wouldn't have a like Babe Ruth is the Diego Maradona of baseball. You, you mean it's it's one of those things that comparisons are drawn oftentimes, which are just uh, you know, I mean I mean soccer's to me strong enough and different enough that you, you, you so many you Americans are it. uncomfortable in their soccer knowledge that they have to make these analogies that's part of the thing I've noticed mm-hmm. with people who are general sports people I always have to make a comparison oh is it the Manchester Derby like uh, Auburn Alabama or, or, or something like that right or right. Uh, Maradona being the Babe Ruth I mean come on no one uh, the, the, everybody around the world knows who Maradona is I don't think many people knew who Babe Ruth was but I, again it's I think insecurity Next up is Azur, and uh, Azur says Clive Tildesley uh, corrected himself in the same breath when he announced the wrong final score in one of the games from the weekend. Not a big deal. But Arla White, in the 36th minute, started talking about the 2019 Women's World Cup in France. He asked Phil Neville about the USA against England game and what he thought about the USA performance. He then asked Phil to assess the US women's national team. The conversation turned to the 2020 She Believes Cup in Orlando when the two sides will meet again. Dear God, when is this embarrassment going to end? And that's a good comment, too, because I, I think it oftentimes, I mean, if you interview, which, which I, ha, I have done, you interview NBC Sports executives, especially at the higher level, their, their philosophy, their mission is, is that they don't want to get in, into the, in the way of the sport. They want the sport, the game itself, to do the talking. And I think Arlo oftentimes kind of inter- interjects himself in, in that and kind of disrupts the flow, where we just want to enjoy the game. We want the commentary of the game itself that we're watching. We're not watching this game to hear what Phil Neville has to say about the U.S. women's national team or the, or the England women's national team. Uh, otherwise, I mean, that could be a separate conversation. That could be a... You know, they do a lot of um, the interview series. Uh, they did one with Jamie Vardy. I think Arlo did that. I mean, kind of a sit-down interview. That That's a good opportunity to ask those types of questions. We do not want to tune into a game to listen to Phil Neville talking about something that has nothing to do with the game itself. Le- uh, go ahead. Well, I'll tell you where it could have been applicable this weekend, okay? Because I think... Uh, I think the very first time we saw VAR interpreted in a in a serious fashion, the way we uh, we saw the Pookie goal called back or the or the Wolves goal called back when Johnny uh, maybe offside, maybe not, uh, was in the England U.S. game that, you, that that that's being referred to when England were denied. What would Prior to VAR have been a perfectly good goal. I don't think there would have been much, uh, many American players or American fans sticking their hand up uh, saying that's offside, unless they're just hopefully doing it, that uh, changed the complexion of that World Cup. I mean, I'm, I'm right. very proud and very happy the U.S. won the World Cup. My belief is if that goal had not been disallowed, uh, England would have won, pushed on to win that yeah. match. They were on the front foot, and they they probably beat Holland. They probably win the World Cup. And so, and that's, I think and that's, that would have been different. the thing to bring yeah. up. That would have been the thing yeah. to bring up. Not the She Believes Cup. Not the rematch. I would. I think it's very uh, applicable because there's been more and more talk about that England U.S. game just with my own circle of friends the last four days because we saw kind of 
we thought the Premier League, particularly from that incident, because it involved England and it cost England um, the potential to win a World Cup, that they would have applied VAR differently because the Premier League publicly had talked about watching the Women's World Cup, talk, knowing the mistakes in, in uh, application of VAR in the Women's World Cup with offside and with uh, goal, uh, goalkeepers coming off their line early and encroachment on penalties. And they said that they had taken note of the mistakes and they were going to fix it in their own in, in, uh, implementation of VAR. They did not. They've done the exact – the implementation is exactly the same, if not worse. Mm -hmm. So that would have been the topic that Arlo and Phil should have discussed. Maybe they're not allowed to go there. Maybe it's league prohibition, which goes back to maybe the entire theme of this show, why, why they wouldn't discuss that specifically. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any like any censorship. I think there's some topics that they will um, not go deep on. Um, I mean, because in many ways they want to kind of maintain that that good relationship, that good working relationship with them with the, the Premier League, with the hopes that uh, in terms of the next renewal rights, that uh, there's nothing negative that comes up. But I, th I think uh, I think the Premier League would be okay with the discussion anyway, though too. But but the, the time and place for it is not during a commentary of a game that's happening as you mean ebb and flow of the game where you mean a split second later something else could happen where now you mean it, it's you mean during half time post match pre match or or you mean at another time but not during the actual commentary of the game to me to me the commentary is sacred it's a sacred time and it's one of those things i, I love listening to commentators um but uh, as brings up some good points here about um about arlo Leonid says, uh, also in the last podcast, you talked about how the Premier League creates problems for the domestic leagues in English-speaking countries, such as the United States, etc. I completely agree, except that this problem uh, is not only in English-speaking countries. In Norway, for example, the Premier League is the most popular league, and even representatives of the Norwegian League do not believe that there will come a time when the domestic league in Norway rec will receive at least a third of the Premier League TV audience, and that is how the Premier League is perceived in Norway. Mm. Next up is uh, Daniel McCurry. And actually, when I went to Norway a couple of years ago on, on vacation and was in um, Bergen, or Bergen um, I mean, and Liverpool was playing. There was like Liverpool bars everywhere and tons and streams of Liverpool supporters uh, walking out of that, that pub. Uh, at that time, Daniel McCurry says, watching the match on NBCSN with Rob Palmer and Ian Dowie, Dowie commented, uh, commented on a potential handball. For me, that's not a handball, uh, Ian Dowie said. The handball rule was just changed, clarified this season. So don't give us your opinion on if that was a handball when you played in the 80s. Tell us how the current rule applies here. When uh, Theo Walcott fouled a Newcastle player, the ensuing free kick led to a goal, but the commentator informed us that Walcott kicking the player uh, uh, inadvertently wasn't a foul. Again, maybe in 1980, but, that's, but that, that's not a foul, but it's clearly a foul in 2019. I love the Premier League, but when these old school play for the shirt, that's not a foul in my day crap, pops up, it's a huge turnoff for all the effort to push the cosmopolitan image of the Premier League. There's still lots of these old school, grumpy former player managers floating around in the media. Wow, Daniel, some good comments there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is not just the Premier League too, but um, I mean, whether it's Major League Soccer, whether it's uh, U.S. Men's National Team games. I mean, most a lot of these leagues, a lot of the commentators and co-commentators are not up to speed on the rules and and are 
you mean not studying it um i'd say it's like taylor twelman is somebody that seems to study everything uh and does has a conscious effort of making sure that uh, he's up to date on, on the latest things uh, unfortunately it's not the case for a lot of other commentators Nash Rambler says, Kartik and Christopher, I saw a video of the announcement of the Charlotte MLS team and the owner-to-be said essentially that finally there would be a professional sports team in Charlotte for the Hispanic community. This has prompted me to ask both of you about the size of the Hispanic audience for MLS attendance and TV viewing based on your own observations as well as any market research either of you have seen. Am I wrong to think that most of the Hispanic population of Mexican descent in the U.S. are following Liga MX much more than Major League Soccer? And am I too cynical to believe that the new Charlotte owners' hyping of the Hispanic appeal is more of a PR exercise than anything based in reality? Yeah, so the um, um, the person who will be largely responsible for running the Charlotte club is Tom Glick, who uh, was the uh, chairman of Darby County before the consortium of American owners that he represented uh, general sports. I think they were called sold the club to Mel Morris, who's the current owner, who's a local uh, from Derbyshire. Uh, so he, he ran, he was, and he was based in Darby and actually uh, visited. Uh, I visited in 2011 uh, uh, Pride Park in, in Darby County. He then moved to Manchester city as a, uh, as as a uh, not as the chief executive, but as uh, I think the chief marketing officer, and, and was there for a while. Got moved uh, by City Football Group to New York when he ran the New York uh, when New York FC launched. Then he switched to work for the NFL uh, Carolina Panthers club. Right, mm-hmm. so um, I, it, it sounds like uh, he's going to have a large uh, influence on uh, the direction of. Where Charlotte markets, I think he's somebody who understands the sport uh, and, and launched New York City FC and MLS, and then also, as I said, has, has worked for two clubs uh, in in uh, in high senior management in in England. So I'm a little more hopeful they'll make this connection. Uh, than other clubs that have launched, with the exception of Atlanta, but by and large. Um, these clubs in MLS do not connect with the Latino fan base the way Liga MX does or other uh, other other leagues do. So yeah. I, I think uh, maybe Charlotte can be an example. I think Charlotte is a uh, uh, is an example of a uh, city with a lot of recent immigration and a lot of recent demographic changes. So. Um, I think that that was the thing that made Atlanta so interesting was that Atlanta had evolved from being kind of this this capital of the South, but this very kind of Southern feeling place, uh, even with CNN based there, even with Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines from there in the 1990s when they hosted the Olympics to being this very cosmopolitan destination for uh, uh, immigrants from Latin America and from Africa uh, and Asia that has now made it. Atlanta United, this, this this incredible story. So Charlotte has some of those elements, mm-hmm. uh, but um, the the playbook in MLS hasn't been executed very well. So I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, Glick and the Charlotte group can do that, but uh, it, it will be an uphill struggle. Yeah, I, I think it's Charlotte projecting. So it's projecting to the future, thinking that uh, they want to capture that Hispanic market, that audience, and they know that um, Hispanic soccer fans are 
very passionate, uh, very, I mean, it goes through not just, I mean, it goes through the families. It's, it's, it is very much a kind of a family event type of thing. It goes through generations. And I think that's something that they want to attract. They want to appeal to and that they're not there yet. And, and that's, and that's why I think, uh, some of the things that, um, was mentioned here from what Nash Rambler said that the person said are a little bit, uh, exaggerated. I mean, obviously, in terms of TV viewing, uh, the Hispanic audience for uh, Liga MX uh, is much, much, much greater than for Major League Soccer. Uh, the one market that I would say that uh, is doing exceedingly well for especially uh, uh, American Mexican Americans of Mex- Mexican descent is LAFC, that, and that's a good example of, of kind of a more of an urban team that's done a great job of the, mar- the marketing. And that potentially could be something that Charlotte can look at to, to see, okay, is there other things that they can learn from that? Um, but overall, though, too, I, I agree with Nash Rambler in terms of this is um, kind of over-exaggeration in terms of what, where they are right now. Now, where they want to be, uh, that's a different story, and that's what they're aiming for, I'm sure. Next up is uh, Rico Richardson, and Rico says, I don't think expansion is the problem when it comes to Major League Soccer. The league is just lacking effort in promoting their brand. Most cities don't consider Major League Soccer Major League because it doesn't present itself as such. Also, I don't think there is a real benefit for MLS if they're ever going to merge both Liga MX and Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer is going to struggle on television and hardly have any national profile in the mainstream American sports. And and that's a good point, too, from Rico, too, is that, you mean this this idea or, or possibility of Liga MX and Major League Soccer merging together or finding way, new ways to kind of uh, play together or work together could actually hurt Major League Soccer in the long run because it could be one of those things where Liga MX takes more of a um, control or more of an influence or more popularity where the Liga MX side grows where Major League Soccer, I mean, maybe the interest kind of plateaus or, or drops a little bit, where it's opening Liga MX to a whole new audience of American English language uh, fans that might be more captivated with that league and the playing style and quality as opposed to Major League Soccer, or maybe not. Monty Reed says, in the podcast, you mentioned that being sports cannot stream FC Barcelona and Real Madrid matches on their new being sports extra channel since being now has over the air channels that is broadcasting being sports extra channel could they broadcast these matches on the over the air channel how likely will cable companies add this new channel to their local channel group so um so yeah just to clarify so yeah um this over the air channel being sports extra will not have barcelona real madrid or atleti games um, there is actually a schedule on beingsportsextra.com where they have the programming schedule. You, you can see what's coming up. It's not all soccer. I mean, they've got other sports too that they're trying to promote. It's really kind of a way to promote the Being Sports channel. And I don't see it very likely that cable companies will add this channel to their local channel groups. Um, maybe some kind of small tier ones may, um, but it's unlikely that some of the big ones, such as Comcast or others, would it's more likely, if anything, like we mentioned in last week's podcast, is that um, they're going to try and find other ways, like whether it's Pluto, Pluto TV uh, or other streaming services that have, um, I mean, Crackle has you mean, free movies and things. I mean, there's probably lots of opportunities for free ways to get uh, programming uh, on different apps out there. 
Bill Reese says, in case any executives at the Bundesliga's American offices listen to this podcast, I'd like to give you all a free idea. The Bundesliga should host a fan fest similar to the Premier League's fan fest. What do you think about having? Um, what do you what, what do you have that the English don't? Oktoberfest. The Bundesliga should pick a weekend in September and host an Oktoberfest themed fan fest somewhere in the U.S., complete with beer, bratwurst, and of course some top-flight German foosball. If it were in New York, I would host it on Governor's Island. Like ESPN Plus, it's not exactly off the beaten path, but it's well worth the effort if you need to travel there. I like the idea. However, I think it's been done, Carter, because I know um, Fox Sports was about maybe two years ago or maybe three years ago had um, a studio broadcast of a game. It might have been Der Klassiker where they had all the, the Bundesliga... Um, the Bayern Munich fans and the Dortmund fans in the studio. I think Alexi Laus was there. I think Kate Abdo was there too. And it was kind of a, an audience in in the studio watching the game. I thought it was typical Fox. I thought it was really poorly promoted. Like very few people knew about this happening until that the day of the game. There was no kind of, you know, with the, with the NBC Fan Fest, whether you like it or don't like it, you know months in advance that this thing is happening. You know that um, you mean there's excitement building, suspense building, there's registration. Are you going to be able to actually? I mean, make the list to get get there. Um, this kind of supply and demand. I mean, not not a lot of uh, supply, but a lot of demand. So it builds up. And with Fox, um, it was kind of they did it. They didn't promote it. They probably promoted it within the Bayern Munich supporters groups and the Dortmund supporters groups. But you need to go beyond that. And uh, Bill's idea, I think, is a great idea, is open it up and have something that's much, much bigger. Unfortunately, I think uh, the time is up for Fox and the Bundesliga. Maybe ESPN might take that idea. And, and we know that ESPN executives listen to this show. Kartik last up is Azer, or Azer, and he says, You guys talked about ESPN FC uh, talking about the Bundesliga more than its current rights holder, Fox Sports. The only problem is next August, the only thing you, you will see on, on the ESPN family of networks is college football. Mm. All right. So if you want to have your say, we'd love to get your feedback, whether it's comments or uh, questions or observations or rants or raves, um, particularly if it's anything in regards to the soccer media. This is, after all, World Soccer Talk podcast, the only soccer podcast that focuses on the soccer me media in terms of what we're watching, whether it's on television, online or apps. Um, we'd also like to wish everyone a happy new year and thank you for listening uh, in 2019. It's been a great year. We've had some, some good guests on and uh, we're looking forward to 2020 uh, with the show getting bigger and better than, than ever. And uh, so if you do have any feedback for us, you can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com uh, slash worldsoccertalk and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com, the flagship website. And Kartik, before we close, uh, any uh, final thoughts here on 2019 and uh, some uh, any uh, observations for 2020? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see two things we talked about in this show. Uh, BN, how they continue to position themselves in 2020. 
and uh, ESPN Plus's rollout for the Bundesliga. And then, of course, keep an eye on CBS for more uh, media moves from them, potentially. They are going to lose SEC football, which is maybe their flagship property on the sports side. Uh, so uh, there is uh, increasing bandwidth and I think an increasing desire for them to get into the soccer business uh, just to fill programming. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in, for 2020 in Turner Sports and what they do with the Champions League, whether they um, take the pedal off and, and just coast and, and just uh, even or if they put in a lot of effort to try to improve the product and build um, Bleach Report really is what they're pushing. Bleach Report Live and um, some of those digital products or digital places as being stronger and, and greater analysis uh, thus far. They've tried a lot of things, but it's been such a frustrating experience, and um, it's improved from where it started. But uh, this could be a good opportunity for them to, to continue and maybe bring in some fresh faces and try some different things and try to save some face. Because uh, I, I know they've made a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of bad first impressions. Plus, of course, where the, where the Premier League goes from here, too. I mean, that's going to be interesting to see what NBC Sports does in trying to elevate their coverage and whether they've hit, hit a peak or whether they can continue uh, advancing that level of analysis, etc. So th- thank you for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audioboom, Overcast, and worldsoccertalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and we'd greatly appreciate it if you can give us a review on itunes whether you like dislike or meh uh, the show uh, any feedback would be would be most welcome and kartik heading into another weekend we've got a lot of football we've had you know, so much football for the last couple of weeks and uh, heading into the new year's we've got uh, a whole bunch of matches on new year's day and beyond uh it's been a great ride but uh what should they do enjoy your football Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.